Thank you, Becky. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew racks or one on the seat. We're in our series called Impact When We Meet God. And last week we looked at verses 1 through 3 and saw that outside of God before we're saved in a real way, which that's what we're going to talk about the whole time today. What does it really mean to be truly saved and truly born again? We, knew, we realized that uh, the Bible says that every person is dead to the things of God. That means that we don't have the desire for anything having to do with God. Maybe religion, but not God. And, and also that we're in bondage to our own sin. Also, we're, we've been deceived by the devil. It's not a very good picture, is it? And then to top that off, over at the end of verse 3, it says that we were by nature children of wrath. I mean, my goodness. It's kind of a bleak picture for those of you who are, who are here last week that the Bible basically gives a picture that God is separated from us because of our sin. But what we are going to look at and break down today, here's kind of the thrust, is that God wants to save and change us. For real. And I said this a few weeks ago. We're not trying to create any uh, false environment of worship, but if the Lord lays it upon your heart to say amen, you go ahead and do that. If He uh, leads you to uh, be expressive, we're not talking about throwing hymnals and jumping over pews. Um, you go ahead and feel free by the Lord to do that. Everybody okay? All right, we just want to have the spirit of freedom today. And the title of today's message is called Collision Course. When we collide with God. What does it look like when God meets us? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read there in verses 4 through 7. And if you could, let's just go ahead and stand as we uh, honor the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 4. And the Bible says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions or our sins, He made us alive. If you have the King James Version, it says He quickened us, which means to give life to something that was dead. With Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, so here's the purpose, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that today that You would speak to us through Your Word. And we thank You for the opportunity even to be able to have the knowledge of You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank You. And you can be seated. The main idea for today's message is that our big word is regeneration. Let's go ahead and say that together. Ready? Regeneration. That was good. Good job. Y'all are awake. Outstanding. It always makes it better when you're preaching and everybody's awake. The word regeneration is really a big word because it carries a big concept. Um, how many of you have ever heard the phrase born again? Can I see your hand? Okay. How many of you have ever anytime heard somebody say he got or she got saved. Can I see your hand? 
Okay, very good. So a lot of times we have this this kind of knowledge about Christianity, but we don't really understand what it means. Regeneration is this. It is an act of God that results in us receiving a new heart and new desires. And the result of that is that we want to know God where before we didn't want anything to do with God. Are we all on the same page? Regeneration, please understand, being born again, being saved, is not something that's simply a decision that we make. But rather, what the Bible says is regeneration, being born again, being saved, is something that God does in us. So, the question changes, doesn't it? Instead of, are you a Christian? Have you been saved? Have you believed in Jesus? Have you prayed the prayer? The question changes from not, have you decided to follow Jesus, but has Jesus ever changed you? You see how that changes the, the, the spectrum? And the Bible gives us a very clear picture and that God desires to change you. And if you're here today and God has been working on you, He's been drawing you and you've been thinking a lot more about life and and death and about Jesus and, you know, where you would go when you died and am I really saved? I'm praying that today God would just break through and show you from His Word what it truly means to be born again. Now, we're going to answer several questions today that a lot of people have asked. One of those is, is it really possible to change? You ever wondered that about somebody else? (laughs) Is it really possible for that person to change? We're going to look at what God's Word says. Secondly, what is being saved? What really is that? Third question, what about all the hypocrites in the church? Number four, can I lose my salvation? Can I get saved and then go back to not being saved? And also, what does being saved really look like? That's what we're going to break down. Go with me in verse four. Let's get to work. The the, the aspects of being saved begin with with God's character described. And now notice there in verse 4 it says, but God. Now that that word but is a conjunction. It's kind of like an interruption. It's it's cutting it off at the passway, but God. Now if we were to back up a few verses, we would see, like we explained a few moments ago, man, that without God, we are radically separated from Him. And there's nothing good that we can do to outweigh sin, right? I mean, a lot of times when God begins to speak to a person, they say, well, you know, I know that I have these areas that I need to change in my life, so let me stop doing the bad stuff and start doing the good stuff. But we can, and we're going to look at this in this message, we can somehow modify our behavior, but guess what? You and I can't change our own hearts, and that's what we need. You see, church, if you're always pointing out what people do, but never go into the heart, the question is not what you do so much as, well, what is it inside that's moving you to do what you do? So God is interrupting. This is the most benevolent interruption in all of history. And then notice how God is described in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. Man, this word here, rich, it means to the uttermost extremes. It means extremely deep. You ever heard somebody say, that guy's got deep pockets. 
It's speaking that God has extremely deep pockets of mercy. Now, if you were to turn back over to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, it sheds some light. The Bible says, in Him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. Redemption is buying back something that was lost. The picture is that we're separated from God, and God came in the person of Jesus Christ and paid for our sin and bought us back. Verse 7 reads, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Man, I'm so glad that God is full of mercy, aren't you? I mean, I'm so glad that God is not like us. I mean, can you imagine what the universe would be like if you were God? You ever heard somebody say something, well, if I were God, I'd be shooting down lightning right over there. I mean, seriously, you read something in the newspaper, you hear something, you watch something on the news, and it's just terrible. And you have this righteous indignation that billows up inside you. Say, if I were God, I would let the hammer fall. But then when we take a step back, and we examine our own lives, we might not do some of the same things, but our heart is just as separated from God as any other person who's never been saved. And I'm so glad that God is a God of mercy. Now, now, notice that verse 7 in chapter 1 says, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Not in Him and in us. Everybody clear on that? It's not a meet in the middle type of thing. So if you're here this morning and you know, you know that you need to be saved, don't, let, don't be confused and think that you've got to clean yourself up to come to God. That makes just as much sense as, do people do mudding around Rocky Mount? Is that a thing to take your trucks, drive it through the mud? Is that a popular pastime? Getting a few head nods and all the cultured people are like, we don't know what that is. God will get you for lying later on. It's okay. Well, at least in South Georgia, where I lived for a while, it was big. I mean, people loved it. It was like you buy this huge, expensive truck and then you drive it in the mud. It's, it's great logic, right? You know, and, and it's the type that you run it through the mud and you don't wash it, right? Because guys will know this, a wash truck that is a monster-ish truck, is not really a manly truck. It's almost like the more dirt, the more man. You get it? So it makes just as much sense to take your truck mudding, and you've got mud and all this stuff caked on, and sit outside the car wash with a feather duster and say, I'm cleaning my car. People say, you are dumb. The car wash is for the purpose of cleaning the truck in the same way that Jesus is there to clean us up. So if you've got problems, if you've got sin, my goodness, don't let that keep you from Jesus. In fact, that ought to push you to Jesus. Now, if I'm in big debt, if I'm in big debt, it would be nice to have a friend who's got deep pockets. Can I get a witness? I mean, if you've got bad money problems and you need money, that's good if you've got your friend who doesn't have any money to come alongside and say, man, I'm so sorry. I'm here with you. I'm here you know, for you if you need a shoulder to cry on. But he can't or she can't help you out. But then if you have a friend who's rich but it's not really your friend, they would never get... I mean, they would squeeze the penny so tight it makes Lincoln's nose bleed. Have you ever known one of those? I mean, a tightwad. They don't give anything anytime and they see you in trouble. They've got plenty, but they won't come to you because they don't have mercy. You know what we both need? We need a rich friend who's got a lot of mercy. 
Because you've got to have both. And the Bible says that God is rich in mercy. He's got it and He wants to give it. Isn't that a good truth today? I mean, from the interruption in verse number 4 that gives this bleak picture about how we are, God's mercy interrupts it. You think back to uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 13. You've got this man who goes into the temple and he is a professional tax cheat. Not a tax worker. I mean, this guy would probably swindle his own grandmother. A guy who was so low in terms of ethics that most Jews, when they saw guys like this, they would spit on the ground and cross to the other side of the street. Absolutely outcast from society. But one day, God got a hold of his heart. He went into the synagogue and he began to pray. He didn't even look, he, he didn't even think that he was good enough to look up to heaven to God. It said that he just kept his head down and he, this is kind of strange. He began to hit his chest. The Bible says he began to beat his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Wow. And you know what Jesus said? He says that that man went away justified. That means that God changed his life. So man, if you're here and you've got things in your life that you're not proud of, let that be the spurring motivation to come to Jesus and let Him cleanse you. Cleanse you, rather. Cleanse you. That's not even a word. I get excited sometimes and I made up a new word. Going on to more in verse uh, number 4. Notice that it says, not only is God rich in mercy, but because of His great love with which He has loved us. You ever heard the phrase, talk is cheap? You ever been around somebody and they, they say, yeah, I'll be there. They're not. They say, I got your back. They don't. They say, hey man, I'm in it with you for the long haul. I am your friend. And they're really not. We've all had experiences like that. But notice that the Bible says that God is rich in mercy, but that it is an active form of mercy. Have you ever been watching the TV and you see a commercial for some starving child in Southeast Asia or Africa. And we kind of just are like, man, that's that's sad. And we have this little twinge of compassion maybe, but that's as far as it goes. The Bible's not saying that God simply feels compassion for us. He actually loves us with a great love. Now, the evidence of God's mercy is that it's an unconditional love. Notice nowhere in the Bible does God say, I love you if. Some of you have been through rough marriages, and it's a almost you feel that it's a conditional type of love. It's, I love you if. Some of you growing up maybe have experienced that from your mom or dad. They say, I love you, son or daughter, if you do this. Or if you stay out of the wrong crowd. And notice throughout the Bible, God's saying I love you not because of anything that you do, but I love you. Check this out. Please don't miss it. Because I am love. You see how that that meshes together? God loves because it is His nature to do that which is loving. And also God's love is an undeserved love. Notice it says in verse number 5, even when we were dead, in our sins. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. That means that God did not see in us something that was morally worthy. That means that God was never in heaven that looked down and said, wow, that is an awesome 
person in Rocky Mount, Virginia. And their morality is so high, I think I'm just going to go down there and save them. No, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We looked at last week. There is no, in the Bible, good person, bad person distinction. We learned last week that it's not the good people who come to church and the bad people who don't come to church. It's that the Bible says all have what? Help me out, church. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only person that God will not deal with is a self-righteous hypocrite. And many times that's found in the church pews because we think, well, because we come, therefore God has a special um, exception clause for me. And it's just not true. Let me say again, if you are here today and God has brought you to the point that you realize that you need forgiveness from your sin, don't let Satan tell you you should never go to God. He'll reject you because of all that you've done. God knows everything that you've done and that I've done. And the amazing fact is that the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, that even when, even when, He still loved us. That's incredible. Aren't there some people who are easier to love than others? All right, we've got some honest folks here. I mean, there's some people, man, like you talk to them and they're, they're funny and they're nice and they're giving and they're, they're very sweet and humble. And you're just like, man, I want to have you over and feed you some food or something. I don't know. I give you a high five. You're just a, a, a nice person. I enjoy being able to spend time with you. And then you take somebody who's a selfish jerk. Some of you, your thoughts just went back to work all this week. Somebody who's arrogant, somebody who's prideful, somebody who never listens to the, what the other person has to say, it always has to revolve around them. <laughs> and it's not very easy to love them. A lot of times when we're around people like that, we're looking for an out. Can I get a witness? You're like, man, how can I get out of this conversation? The Bible says that God loved us even when. Now at this point, over in verse 5, it says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. Notice that this was written to people in Ephesus. Now Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. Not really the bastion of Christianity over there. Turkey, uh, you cannot do a lot of open evangelism because it's a Muslim state, but it's a secular Muslim state. Ephesus during this time was filled with a huge economy on idols. That was where you would go to get your idols. This was like the China of little toy soldiers of idols. Get the picture? I mean, man, they had an incredibly big idol industry. And he's speaking to these people who had all of these wrong ideas about gods. In fact, Greek mythology, when you read Greek mythology, it's all about, I mean, I mean it's almost like you take a twist between Miami Vice, as the world turns, and the Jerry Springer show, and then you get Greek mythology. I mean, that's what it is. Those of you who have seen the movie Clash of the Titans, you've got Zeus up in heaven, and Zeus gets mad because people aren't praying to him anymore. So, so he regresses to kindergarten and begins to do all sorts of things to the people and say, well, if they're not going to play by my rules, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I mean, man, it, is, it, it, it makes, seriously, Greek mythology makes middle school and high school drama look like nothing. 
Some of you are flipping back the chapters in your memory. High school. Oh yeah, I was. I mean, it's amazing when you read it how terrible these Greek gods were. In fact, the Greeks, when they were trying to find out what was good and bad, they didn't even go to the gods. They went to pure philosophy. They said, good cannot come from the gods because we're better than the gods. And if you have been told that your whole life, and then somebody comes to your city and he preaches to you about the supreme God, that there is only one God, and he came to this world, and he took upon himself our sins and our transgressions, and he died, Because He loved us when? Oh my goodness. You just take a step back and you say, what an amazing thing. And for the Jewish person, they would have remembered something like the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Hosea was a prophet. And God said, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. God, is that really you? God said, go find a prostitute, this woman, her name was Gomer. Now, there may be some lady here who's named Gomer, but I'm just going to chance that I may get letters or emails. Don't name your daughter Gomer, all right? So she's this prostitute, and this he marries her, and then she begins to, cons- to continue to be a prostitute, but now she's married. So here's what happens, man. You have this marriage, and then all of a sudden, after the marriage... Um, not too long, and you're like, well, where's Gomer? They go check the red light district. She's there. Hosea brings her back. He says, I still love you. Some of y'all are like, hold on, hold on. Not me. (laughs) Yeah. She runs away again and again and again. Now imagine you in your marriage, or if you're not married, by the way, there's Two types of single people. There's people who are single for a season and people who are single for a reason. So if you're single and you haven't yet, some of y'all got that. I love it. It's kind of, it kind of like ripples across, you know. So, I mean, imagine being in a marriage relationship and your spouse goes back to selling themselves on the market and he brings her back. And shows unconditional love. And then she goes back and time after time. And then the Bible gives this amazing, but it, it's a very detailed, gritty picture that he goes and he finds her in something that we could understand as a slave market. She's there. She's lost her physical attractiveness. She is has no friends. No money. And then you see, she doesn't know who this hand is going to be. She's there just cowering in the dirt because she's lost everything. No self-respect, no honor, no nothing. And then she sees the shadow come over her and she thinks that it's going to be another prospective buyer, a man who will do nothing but abuse her. And she looks up and she sees the face of her husband and he extends his hand down and he brings her back. But you know what? That really wasn't Gomer. That was you, and that was me. And when you look up, that's not just Hosea. That's the face of Jesus. The incredible love that God extends in that while we were still sinners. Now, there are two responses at this point. Two ways you're going to go. One is behavior modification. We've spoken about this. 
You say, I've been doing the wrong thing, but I want to start doing the right thing. So let me change the way that I live my life and start going to church and stop going to the bar or going to my parties or doing whatever I do that I know that God says I shouldn't. So I'm going to just change my lifestyles, change my actions. Well, this will only produce self-righteousness. The best example I know of this are gym people. We're not talking about people who exercise and take care of their bodies. We're speaking of gym people. Say, how do you know a gym person? If they put on gym clothes to go to Kroger, they go and like, hey, I work out. I just want all of you guys to know that I work out. Who works out? This guy! You know, and they're at the cash register and they pull out, is that cash or credit? You know, trying to flex the muscles, let our whole world know. And by the way, have you noticed some people that have had issues with their weight, who have gotten really in shape, are very critical of people who were once, who are still like they once were. Have you ever noticed that? It will produce self-righteousness. If you simply say, I'm going to change the way that I do business. Not only that, the other way it could produce a disillusionment. Like, man, I, I just, I can't do this, man. I can't keep up. I can't, I can't stop my bad stuff. It seems like every time I try to start my good stuff and change my life, I get disillusioned, man. I just, and then I just say, forget it. I'm not even going to go to church. I'm not even going to try to attempt to read my Bible. I'm not even going to attempt to try to get help for any addiction that I may have. I'm just going to say, forget it. There's a group of people in the New Testament that Jesus was always around. And the Pharisees, the church people, called them the, quote, the sinners. See, the sinners were the ones who had become disillusioned with the whole thing. They didn't even go to church. They just said, man, we're going to sit around and have our parties because we can't keep up with all those rules. And Jesus came onto the scene to say, it's not a list of rules you got to keep, but you must be born again. That's what it is. You must be born again. So over in verse 5 and 6, if you want to write this down, this, this is the application of God's power. Notice, He made us alive. Now, this is actually the first verb in the passage. You know that? That's kind of cool because Paul is giving this running description of our condition before God. And then finally in verse 5, the first real verb, and then it's God made us alive. Now, if you're dead... Can you make yourself alive? <laughs> Some are like, uh, no, all right? I mean, if I'm dead, if I am made alive, it's got to come from somewhere outside of me. Now, here's the question. Is it really possible to change? Yes. The Bible says that change, please don't miss this, change is something that God begins in us. Change is not something that we simply do. It results from true change from a changed heart, you see. That means when our heart gets changed, our actions will change. And if you're dealing with somebody in your family, they don't have a desire for God or, or they, they just don't seem to um, want to follow Jesus, and you say, well, you've got to go to church, you've got to read your Bible. That's, that's not the issue. The issue is the heart. Now, the Bible gives very clear picture of what it means to be saved. I'm just not going to give the scriptural references. I'll just describe these. If you want them, they should be on the website or I'll give them to you after the service. 
Bible describes being saved as a change of heart. Question, have you ever had a change of heart? Describes it as passing from death to life. Describes it as being a new creation. Question, has there ever been a time in your life, not when you've walked down the aisle or joined the church, but has there ever been a time to where God has changed your life? Like not, you know, I'm going to start going to church, but, 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 but changed you from the inside out. Talks about being born again, which literally means born from above. That means something that God does in us. It speaks of their hearts being purified by faith. Galatians 6.15 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accounts or avails anything but a new creation. In other words, you can change your outward appearance, but if you can't change your heart, then what's the point? Regeneration, it involves a connection, you can think of it this way, a connection of the phone line that's been broken through sin. You ever, you ever tried to, to pick up and talk on a phone that wasn't working? You just pick it up and it's just dead air? In the same way, the Bible says that a person who's trying to get to God without God changing their heart is talking on a phone that's not been connected. And I love seeing some of these cool guys walk down the road sometimes, you know, and they're talking on their cell phone. I'm like, dude, that thing's been turned off for three months, you know, don't even try. But it speaks of a connection to God. Question, have you ever been connected to God? You're like, Jeff, man, what does that mean? It means a heart change that results in a life change. Carl F.H. Henry said, individual regeneration is not only a chief, but an indispensable means of social reform. What he's saying is, is it possible for God to change one person? What do you think, church? Yes. So if God changes my heart, and I'm living in this town, then God can change this town through me and you. You see, the, the, the world must be changed by our hearts being changed. And the amazing thing is that God is not holding back this change, but He wants to give it to us. So here comes the question. Like, man, Jeff, you're talking about getting changed and being made alive and having a desire for God, being born again. What about all those people I know who go to church and all throughout the week they live exactly like me? What about that? Well, First thing you need to understand, what is a hypocrite? Let's talk about that. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is not a Christian who's struggling against sin. By the way, if you are a Christian, you are struggling against sin. All of us are struggling against sin. If the fact that you have things in your life that you cannot stand, and you constantly pray, Lord, please help me to get rid of this thing. It seems like this thing keeps hanging on my back like a leech. Would you help me to cut this off? Lord, I don't like the way that I talked to somebody this week. I don't, I, I hate that the fact that my thought life kind of went down the tubes at certain places throughout today. Lord, would you cleanse me of that? That is a Christian who's struggling against sin. A hypocrite is a pretender. You say, well, Jeff, what about hypocrites in the church? Well, number one, Jesus said there would be hypocrites. We all okay on that point? Jesus said there would be. Matthew 7, Matthew 13, he said there's going to be hypocrites. Two weeks, we're going to take the whole message and talk about hypocrites. So that might be kind of hard to invite people to. It's like, hey, dude, we're coming. We're talking about hypocrites on Sunday. You should come. You know, people might get the wrong idea. But Jesus said there would be. Number two, the reality of the false does not negate the existence of the true. Imagine that we have a hundred bottles that have wrapping that says 
Coca-Cola Classic. All right? Just over here. Let's act that out of those hundred bottles with Coca-Cola wrapping, that there's actually ten of those that are diet tab soda. Some of you just had a bad memory. You're like, oh, son, I remember the tab days. Now, question. Since 10 are tab and 90 are Coke, are there any fakes in the batch? Yes, there is deception because it's advertising something on the outside that's not on the inside. But does the presence of the fakes really mean that there are not some that are for real. You see. So the fact that, man, you, you may notice hypocrites. Hypocrites don't take away from the truth of the Gospel. Please hear me. They actually enforce it. Because only Jesus said there would be people who would say they would follow Him but in their actions and their words and even in their hearts would actually deny Him. So also, um, this is kind of a a wake-up call. There are no hypocrites in heaven. They all go to hell. I just want to be very very honest. A lot of times people in in towns of any size are witnessed to and they say, well, I want to join the church, start following Christ. But there are hypocrites there. Let me just say, um, if you if you are a, a member of Rocky Mount Baptist Church, but you are living a hypocritical life, ask that you would contact our office and we will gladly take you off the roll until you repent. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you are a member of this church, but by your lifestyle and dishonesty, whatever it may be, people see you and they think that we here are like that. And the biggest part is they may think that Jesus is a fake. So, repent, get right, ask forgiveness, but there are no hypocrites in heaven. And if you think about this, it's really kind of a dumb argument. It's like, well, all those hypocrites are being hypocrites and they're going to go to hell one day, so because they're hypocrites, therefore I should get to go to hell. Does that make any sense? It doesn't, Joseph. If you see hypocrites in the church, please do not let that keep you from Jesus Christ. Please know that Jesus said one day there will be a division between the sheep and the goats and it will be forever. Now, if you're a hypocrite here today, man, I didn't get saved until I was 19. I was a hypocrite in the youth group. Jesus can change your life today. Amen, church? The grace of God extends because He is rich in mercy. So we're not trying to say, you know, we're the good people in the church and those are the hypocrites. No, what we're saying is that we all need the grace of God. Finally, in verse 6, not only does it say that we've been made alive, but we've been raised up with Him and seated with Him. Raised up with Him, this is the third singular. means that He raised us up. So for the question, can I lose my salvation? No. Why? Because God regenerates us. We all on the same page? 
It's not just a decision. It's something that God does in us. It's a supernatural work. Being born again, I've never known somebody who said, you know, you, you talk about birthdays and you're like, well, you know, when was your birthday? Well, it was such and such a date. Yeah, it was really awesome. It was kind of difficult, but um, it was an amazing day. And you're like, what are you talking about? You're like, why didn't I? They say, well, I didn't have a mom. I just kind of like birthed myself <laughs> out of nothing. I just kind of was not there, and all of a sudden I just decided with the brain and the mind that I didn't have, you know what, I think I'd like to exist. And all of a sudden, I was there. Like, dude, I don't know what you're on, but I don't want any of it. That's just crazy. In the same way, we do not give birth to ourselves, but Jesus said God is the one who causes us to be born again. And I'm really glad, because if you're like me, and getting born again was up to you, you'd mess it up. Not only does God regenerate us, but notice what it says in verse 6. He seated us with Him. That means that we are the recipients of regeneration and not the producers. So if you're here today and you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this Christian thing, man. Jeff, I don't know if I can really do what I need to do. Please understand, it is by the grace of God, through the grace of God, and for the glory of God. I mean, what does that mean, dude? That's preacher talk. That means that it is God who saves you, it is God who keeps you saved, and it is God's grace that will bring you one day to heaven. Amen? That means that God is not going to say, all right, I'm going to save you by grace. I'm going to create in you a new heart, but you got to keep that heart running. Somebody got a pacemaker for him. He just went to a business meeting. I mean, God is not going to do that. God is the one who creates and God is the one who continues. Finally, it says that he seated us with him in the heavenlies. That means that if you get saved today, you have your reservation ticket for heaven. You remember when you were a little kid and you were going to go somewhere and you, you had that, that, that ticket, right, that mom and dad gave you, whether it was Disney World or someplace, you just couldn't wait to go. But that ticket stub, or maybe it was to a ball game, it reminded you that you have a seat there. They have a reservation for you. And the Bible says today that God can change your heart. Like, well, Jeff, man, what is a good testimony? I mean, what really would, should I say or, or, or what, how can God use me? Let me be very clear. A lot of times in church, the only testimonies that people think are good are the ones that go like this. Well, I was involved in, in murder, arson, terrorism, and genocide, and then God saved me at the age of 14. You know, and people are like, wow, that's such an amazing testimony. He was hooked on cocaine and, and this and that. You know, it's like these huge monstrosities of a story. And then there's some of you, maybe you were raised um, to hear God's word at a young age and you were saved and you're like, well, man, I wasn't ever, I wasn't ever hooked on heroin. I don't have a good testimony. Do you realize that the reality some of you grandparents, parents, that you raised your kids to follow Jesus. Sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. And they got saved when they were young. They didn't have to go down the gutter way. The grace of God intercepted them when they were young. The world and parents need to hear that my children don't have to do what I did. They don't have to live with what I have to live with. And because of that, any testimony that says Jesus Christ saved me is a good testimony. 
You might be five years old and the only thing that you need to give up and repent from is making trouble in your kindergarten class. But there has to be a point in every person's life to be saved. You say, well, Jeff, how do I know I've been born again? It's very simple. How do you know you've believed on Jesus? The fact that you've continued to trust in Jesus. How do you know if you've repented of your sin? The fact that you've continued to repent of your sin. See, Jeff, I mean, what, what can happen if I get saved? God will radically change your life. Life will become more difficult because you're going to live against the world system. But God will give you the power and God will give you the grace even if, this is going to scare some of you, even if persecution comes to this country, even if God brings you on missions to another place in the world and you are put under the knife, you're put under the gun, and they say you're going to have to renounce Jesus and live, God's going to give you the grace to say Jesus is Lord like the Apostle Paul. God will radically change your life. You say, Jeff, how does that happen? Well, the best way I know to explain it, there's a preacher named Paul Washer, and he says it like this. Imagine you've got a group of students and they love physics. Personally, I don't understand that, but let's just use it for for sake of example. They love physics. They eat and breathe it. They're always writing down formulas. They love physics. And they go to their senior year and they're with the toughest professor in the university. And he says, as they come into the classroom and they're just, they're, they're afraid, they're going to try as hard as they can. He looks out and he says, you all get an A. They look at each other and say, did I hear him? Did he say, sir, what? All of you get an A. Because I'm gracious and because you've come this far, I'm giving you an A. Let's just enjoy the material. I think they're going to be filled with such gratitude to say, oh, all the pressure of earning a grade is off of me. All all of that, that pressure, I don't have to worry about it. And they can enjoy the class. Now, if there were a group of English students in the class who hated physics and had to take it just as a requirement, the second the professor said, you've got an A, they're like, well, we don't have to do projects? No, you get an A. We don't have to turn in research papers? No, because I'm gracious, I give you an A. They're going to walk out the classroom and throw their book in the trash and never look back. But the fact that Jesus Christ came into this world and suffered a humiliating, degrading death on a Roman cross, and by doing that, He extended His arms of love and said, if you believe in Me as your Savior, you get an A. It's done. If you're truly born again, you say, I got an A. I deserve an F. I don't deserve it. He did all of that for me. How can I serve Jesus? How how can I serve my master? I know I can't get an A by doing that because he's already given it, but how can I serve Jesus? He gave me an A. Praise God for him doing what I could not do. And thank you, Jesus, for earning my salvation when I could never earn it.